so I, I know that it would, works better if I do what God would have me to do, so I'm going to follow what he's doing. Um, and while you're turning there, I do just want to say, because we talked about faith last night, and I understand there's a little bit of misunderstanding on a statement that I made, uh, I, I want you to know that the opposite of faith, what I said, was sight, not science. I believe in science. And some people thought that I said the opposite of faith is science. We didn't say that. The opposite of faith is sight because doubt arises from what we see. Are we good on that? (laughs) Some of you didn't even listen to what I said last night, so why am I worried about it now? (laughs) Mark chapter 9. I'm going to tell you what we're going to do before we do it so you know where we're going. We're going to read verses 9 and 10 together simply to connect the first section with the second section that we're going to spend some time in. Because after we read verse verse 10, we're going to jump down to verse 14 and read verses 14 through 18 to set the stage. Now after we hit verse 18, I need to warn you right up front, we're not going to spend any time on the miracle that Jesus does in this boy's life. I'm assuming that probably most of us that are here at a camp meeting on Tuesday night have heard this story at least once. In case you have not, I want you to understand that the boy turns out fine. I want you to know that. He turns out fine. We're just not going to get into that. Because after we read verse 18, we're going to skip down to verses 28 and 29. And from these verses, I believe we'll be presented with a proposition that if we would listen seriously to we'll be confronted by the truth of God's Word, and if we respond, we'll be changed by the time we leave this place. And I don't know about you, but that's what I want. I want to be changed. I don't want to be the same. In fact, none of us will be the same when we leave for having been here in His presence together. The question is, will we be closer to Him or a little bit farther away? I want to be closer to Him. I trust you do as well. Now that I told you what I was going to do, let's do it. Verses... 9 in chapter 9 of Mark's Gospel. Now as they, Jesus, Peter, James, and John, came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them that they should tell no one the things they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. Verse 14. And when Jesus came to the remaining nine disciples, He saw a great multitude around them and scribes disputing with them. Immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed, and running to him, greeted him. And he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? Then one of the crowd answered and said, teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit. And wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. Jump down to verse 28. And when Jesus had come into the house where the disciples had retreated, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we cast it out? So Jesus said to them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. I've been spending, I spent quite a bit of time in the center section of Mark's gospel where we find ourselves tonight. It begins with verse 22 of chapter 8 and continues all the way through the end of chapter 10. I would suggest to you that it's the natural connecting section between the two main sections of the gospel. 
You have the first section that begins in verse 2 after an announcement of verse 1, but in verse 2 of chapter 1 and carries all the way through verse 21 of chapter 8, which is best entitled, The Kingdom Goes Public. Because that's what we see. With the stage prepared, John the Baptist had prepared the way what the prophets of old had foretold. Jesus takes center stage and he begins to announce his Father's kingdom. And in the announcement of the kingdom, there's a lot of different reactions that occur. I, I won't take the time to go through them, but we see the, that religious people, they decide they don't want anything to do it. But we also watch positive impacts of the kingdom. You, you know when the kingdom goes public, lives are changed. We see lame people beginning to dance around. We watch leper people restored to community. We see empty bellies filled with small amounts of fish. Folks, I I want you to know, when the kingdom goes public, still today, when the kingdom goes public, lives are changed. It's exciting. The second section begins with chapter 11 and goes all the way through the end, which is best entitled, at least I believe, you can disagree, but I believe the kingdom realized. Because what we see at the beginning of chapter 11, the one place where Jesus should have stayed away from was Jerusalem. But we watch him as he willingly enters in. It's on Lamb Selection Day. Now, we call it Palm Sunday. But it's that day when two and a half million devout Jewish individual scholars will say have gathered in the city of David to select their Passover lamb. Because in their commemoration of the Passover, they would remember, of course, what God had done. But they would also anticipate what God was going to do. Because they believed that God was going to send Messiah. That deliverer was going to come. That the exodus would be renewed. And on a day when they were busy in their religious activity, God is sending his lamb to confront his people. And the confrontation is here tonight as well. Will you choose my lamb? Because we know that this Passover, we know it's going to be different than any other. When Jesus sheds his blood on a tree, when he sacrifices himself, one drop becomes a river and all of a sudden, every barrier that had ever gone up between God and man. Every wall that had been erected comes tumbling down and it's at that point in time that a door is opened that has never been opened before and an invitation is heralded through to anyone who would be willing to walk in to an entirely new category of being. What is that category? Because of what the Son has done, you and I can be sons and daughters of God. Aren't Aren't you thankful tonight that the kingdom has been realized? He has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. Oh, I wish you would get excited about that. That's exciting. That's our hope. He's done for us what we could never do. Well, the center section connects it. I've referred to it before as the nature of the kingdom because that's what we learn in this section in ways we've never seen. The first section comes to a close in a very dramatic fashion. Jesus looks at his men, his disciples, that have been with him now for three years. Understand that. He looks them in the eye and he says, How is it, guys, you have eyes and you don't see? How is it you have ears and you don't hear? Why aren't you getting this thing? So now he begins to unfold in ways up to this point he has not done the kingdom. It's really incredible because it's in this section for the first time, he affirms his identity. Now, of course, the disciples had their, their thoughts, their beliefs, and so did other people. But here he actually affirms. You remember the scene. 
Who do you say I am? After he asks, who do people say? Who do you say? And Simon Peter gets it right. You're the one we've been waiting for. And Mark is so interesting. This is why I like Mark. He's brief. Not like me. He's brief. When he says, you're the one, this is what Jesus does in Mark's story. He goes, shh, don't tell anybody that. But now that you know who I am, let me tell you what Messiah has come to, pop, pop, to, to accomplish. Could it be that there's nothing more dangerous in understanding who Jesus is but refusing to embrace what that means for your life? Just a thought. Nothing more dangerous. He says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over to my enemies. I am going to suffer at their hands. I will bleed. Ultimately, I will die and be buried, but that won't be the end because on the third day, I will rise again. You've got to understand, this is the first time he speaks of, so plainly about the cross. He's not done it up to this point. Oh, he's eluded. He, he, he's a, but now he is speaking plainly on what Messiah has come to accomplish. And actually, in this section, he'll do it three times. And the disciples don't like it. Because it doesn't fit in to what they believe the Messiah to be. Now, the Old Testament, we know, it has both a, a, a suffering servant Messiah and it has a conquering king Messiah. We know that, but see, the disciples had bought into the conquering king. It's the way they had been raised in synagogue. It's what mom and dad and mamo and papo had ingrained in them. And so now when Jesus is talking about a Messiah that suffer, bleeds, and dies, they don't like that. You, you do know everything you were taught in Sunday school isn't necessarily kingdom. Just because mom and dad told you something in mamo and papo doesn't mean it's kingdom. Jesus is the only one that has that right. Oh, look at me like that. I could point out things. You'll be thankful I don't because I would take the time. But, but I could point out things that you think are biblical that are not. Well, maybe not you, but other people. It shakes them. Because they're expecting Messiah to come and right all the wrongs that happened to Israel. That Messiah would set up an earthly throne, a present tense glory, and they, they expected to, to, to rule right alongside. Remember the arguments that they have from time to time? So naturally, when Jesus starts talking about suffering, bleeding, and dying, it stirs them up. In fact, Simon Peter, the one who had just said, you're the one that we've been waiting for, when he hears what Jesus says, he says, it's not going to happen like that. It's not going to be so. Messiahs not. Let me remind you what Messiahs do. Messiahs don't suffer. They cause other people to suffer. In fact, here's the list of all the people I want you to make suffer. Sit there and act totally. You've got your list too. But you, you, you know, I mean, it, it just stirs up. It causes, let's just put it in a very short way. It causes an argument between Jesus and his inner circle. In fact, now, for the first time in three years' journey, three years of time together, Jesus is exper experiencing with his inner circle the same problem he has with the religious leadership. Y you know what the problem that he has with the religious leadership? Unmet expectations. You'll recall their mantra. They're very proud of their religiosity. They won't stand in the presence of the ungodly. They won't certainly be around them. They won't take counsel. And now Jesus comes along and what's he doing? He's eating with them. He's embracing them. And so how could this be the Messiah when he's not even as holy as we are?
unmet expectations. The disciples expected a conquering king, but they're getting a suffering servant. Oh, he will be king, but not on their terms. By the way, he won't be king on your terms either. There is tension. There is dissonance. For the first time, an argument starts. Now, there have been misunderstanding, but this is an argument that they have for six days. How do we know it's for six days? Because Mark chapter 9 tells us that verse 2. That's the context for the first section of chapter 9. It says after six days, what's been going on? They've been fussing. They've been trying to get Jesus to do it their way. They've been trying to tell Jesus what the king is supposed to do. It says after six days, Jesus takes the big mouths. You know who the big mouths are, right? Peter, Simon Peter. Can we agree that he's a big mouth? Uh, I mean, he's the one that speaks when he doesn't know what to say. That's not me saying that. Scripture describes him that way. It'll say later in chapter 9, he said these things because he didn't know what to say. You've got to love a guy who will speak because he doesn't know what to say. Simon Peter had a big mouth. He had foot and mouth disease. So do I. I relate. But James and John were the other two. And Jesus had a nickname for them. Do you remember? Sons of Thunder. And if you're a son of thunder, you might be a little thunderous. You might be a little bit boisterous. He's taking the ones with the loudest voices. It's the inner circle of the inner circle. The ones who can sway the others up to the mount. Why is he taking them up there? Well, you know why. Jesus has done this his entire ministry. He's stealing away to spend some time in prayer. He's going to spend some time with his father He often does that to gather strength for the day, to gather strength for the storms that are brewing around him. And so this time he's doing the same thing. The only difference is he's not alone. He's taking those big mouths. And I can only imagine. Now, you know this isn't scripture, so you don't have to buy into this. I'm a visual thinker. It's what I see in my mind. It may not have been this way, but I can see Jesus leading them out in front. A little bit of space in between. They're making their way up to the mount. They're probably grumbling because that's what disciples do. They're back there grumbling about the whole thing. And Jesus is saying, Father, you've got to do something with these hard-headed guys. You've got to do something. I don't have three more years to convince them. And this argument has been going on six days. Now Luke would say eight. It's a different counting method. It's not an indiscrepancy. But, but you know, he'd been, they're not getting it. Something has to happen. I say that because Jesus got frustrated. You do know that Jesus got frustrated, right? Uh, I've seen him get frustrated. I could take you to the end of chapter 1 where he snorts at a man. And, and you say, Jesus didn't snort. Oh, yeah, he did. Because the word that Jesus, your translation may say, he strictly warned him or, or hard, firmly rebuked him. It, it, the, the meaning is, the, the word that's used is the word, same word that's used for scarcely controlled animal fury. A, a horse's snort. I love a Jesus that snorts. I do because I snort from time to time. He he, he takes them up there and and he spends some time in prayer. And I don't have time to get into this. You know the scene. It's the transfiguration. We get caught up in the light. And of course Moses and Elijah, all the symbol of the law and the prophets are standing there. And it's coming together in the sun. But I don't want you to get caught up in that. Because this transfiguration word is an inner working type word. So much so that it's used three times in our New Testament. One time it's used of Jesus. Guess who it's used the other two for? You and me. I'll throw one at you. Be transfigured 
Yeah, well, we say it like, be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. There's a bright light. There's a conversation that's going on. Now the disciples are listening to every word, but they're not invited in. How encouraging would it have been for Jesus? Because Luke tells us that they're talking about his future exodus, his soon decease. They're talking about the cross. And after six or eight days arguing with his inner circle, how encouraging would it have been for Jesus to listen to Moses and Elijah having and seeing all this as the plan is coming together? How encouraging would it be for the disciples? You know what? I'm going to give myself too much credit. But I would think that if I were able to listen to Jesus, Moses, and Elijah have a conversation about the plan, I would think that maybe I would hold my tongue. I give myself too much credit. Those of you who know me probably would agree. I think that I would think, okay, Jesus knows what he's talking about. I wouldn't try to get him to clarify anything. I mean, Jesus knows what he's talking about. But not Simon Peter. Nervous energy takes over. And he says, Master, teacher, rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let's put up three booths. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He interrupts the conversation. But you know... Times for interruptions of the plan need to come to an end. And we watch as soon as this interruption begins, there's a divine interruption. They're overshadowed by a cloud. A voice thunders from that cloud and says, this is my son. In other words, he looks and he said, God says, Peter, shut up. Your translation won't... Oh, and if there are little kids in here, don't say that at home. (laughs) It's the strength. This is my son. Listen. Hear. Hush. Listen. Hear him. Let me just throw this out there. If you're going to be a kingdom Christian, that's what we learn how to be in this section. Then it's going to require you having a kingdom mindset. You've got to give up what you believe about the kingdom for what Jesus says it is. Because frankly, it doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter what I say. He's the one that defines it. We have to have a kingdom mindset. That's why we're to be renewed, transformed, transfigured by the renewing of our mind. And it seems to work because as soon as it begins, it's over. And the conversation... Um, has come to change. The, the argument has come to an end in a way. I mean, there are questions that are going on. They don't understand what's happening. We don't understand much. Uh, but now it seems their main concern as they're coming down from the hill is what does Jesus mean by rising from the dead? What is all this resurrection talk? And, and be sure, it's not that they didn't believe in resurrection. They did. They just believed that it was coming at the end of time. And now Jesus is talking as though, at least for him, it's going to be happening pretty soon. So you have in the first section this mountaintop experience. You could say that in the first section of Mark chapter 9, heaven literally touches earth. And how many times do we want to live up on the mountaintop? I mean, we enjoy sharing camp. We enjoy those high moments. And I am thankful, I will be the first to say, that we have a God, that we are in relationship, that we can not only know about, but we can feel. 
I wish we'd feel a little bit more. I'm thankful for that. But you do know you can't always live on the mountaintop because life occurs in the valley. And what we see when you enter into the second section, such a contrast. Mark is a wonderful gospel writer, paints pictures like none other. We see the contrast of the mountaintop and the valley of living. Because where heaven has touched earth on the mountain, in the valley of living, hell has broken loose. We see that there is chaos on the scene. And Jesus walks right into the middle of that mess. Aren't you thankful tonight that we have a Jesus who is willing to walk into the middle of our messes? I am thankful for the time in 1987 that Jesus walked into the middle of a mess that a 15-year-old boy called his life and he changed it forever. I am thankful that he walks in, but he walks into the middle of that mess and he's going to move. So here becomes the challenge. We want to live on the mountain? But the call of the church, the mission, is to figure out how we get the power of the mount down to the valley of living. Because only when the power of the mount flows into the valley of our living, our lives change. Only when the power of the mount flows into the valley of living are sinners set free. Only then does ministry occur. So we have to see, we have to know, we have to answer the question, how can we get the power of the mount down to where we live? It seems in the valley that chaos has ensued. I've already said that, but we we know the reason why it has happened is because there's a man in that crowd. Actually seems to be the genesis of the whole thing. Because he has brought his son who Mark will tell us is overcome with a mute spirit. And that's very important to get a hold of because when you hear that he's overcome with a mute spirit, that moves it out of the physical realm to the spiritual realm. This is not simply epilepsy. This isn't simply just some kind of physical ailment. No, there is a war that is going on. The kingdom of darkness wants to claim this boy for its own. You do know that there are really only two kingdoms of this world. The kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. You are in one or the other. There is no in-between. You're on one side. And the kingdom of darkness wants to claim this boy We hear the father. You know that this dad had probably tried everything that he could possibly try. Anything that that medical science could bring, I'm sure if he had the money, if he could afford it, maybe even borrowed, he tried, he sought the answer, but medical science fell short. You know that he might have even been, my family's from Southeast Kentucky, I told you that, he might have even tried some wives' tales. But nothing seemed to work, and now it has reached such mass, It's so dire that if something doesn't change, you hear it later in the story, sometimes it throws him into the fire. Sometimes it throws him into the water. He's got the sense that if something doesn't change, his boy's life is going to come to an end. So having exhausted everything he knew, now he's going to bring his son to the one place, to the one man that he believed could make a difference. And you know why he would come to Jesus. Because he had obviously seen what happened 
happened when the kingdom had gone public, where he at least heard about a Jesus who was willing to touch lepers. He heard about a Jesus who made lame people dance around. He might have even heard about a Jesus at this point who made a little dead girl live again. And if Jesus can make a dead girl live, if he will touch lepers and touch lame people, then certainly he'll meet my boy's need. So he comes to the one place that he believed could make a difference. But remember, when he gets there, Jesus isn't there. Jesus is up on the mount with the big mouths. You hear it as the father responds. He says, I brought my boy to you. And you need to understand, it's an accusative statement. It's not passive. It's not easy. No, you hear the anguish. You can hear his heart. I brought my boy to you, Jesus, because he has a need. His spirit, it takes, he, something needs to be done. We try, I brought him to you, but you weren't here. It's an accusative statement. You sense the urgency. But he continues to say, so I look to them. Now, who are they? The remaining nine disciples. The ones that are left there in the valley. I look to them to do for my boy what I brought him to you to do, but they couldn't do it. Those are his words. That's what's going on. And I don't know how you approach Scripture, but, but I'm going to tell you how I, I do. When I read this passage, first reading, I'll tell you what my natural reaction is, is I want to kind of come to the disciples' defense. I do. I want to say, come on, Dad, that's not fair. really do. I, I want to say, come on, Dad. I know you've got a lot on your mind. I know the situation is intense. This is bad. You are emotional, Dad. But remember, we don't operate out of our emotions. That's what moms do. <laughs> I told you I'm going to get a response one way or another. You love me or hate me. That's okay. I've spent my life doing that. But anyhow... You know, I want to say it's not fair. You know how we do this. I think we even talked about this in one of the sessions. And we're still having the 10 o'clock session in the morning, right? The discussion in right in here. So you ought to be part. But I want to say, don't put that on them, Dad. They're just men. He's Jesus. You know how we do that? He's Jesus. This isn't fair. He's Jesus. I really want to say that to him. But I can't. Because for 22 years now, I started traveling when I was 24. And for 22 years now, I have tried to stress and I've tried to live by this. Everywhere I go, I've tried to stress that when you come to the Word of God, you don't simply latch on to a passage or a section of Scripture and yank it out of the book. You cannot do that. When you simply try to build your understanding of God on a section, that's where bad theology comes from. That's where bad doctrine is developed. You come to the Word of God as a whole. Scripture interprets Scripture. Hey, by the way, that's why you don't throw away the Old Testament. The Old Testament is a book about Jesus and the scarlet thread runs throughout the entire thing. Scripture interprets Scripture. There is a larger context to our text. So even though I want to come to these men defense and say, they're only men, he's Jesus, I can't because I've read chapter 6. 
Do you remember Mark chapter 6? If you have your Bible, turn there with me. I'll show you what I mean. Now, Mark chapter 6 begins out, it's action-packed. The entire gospel is action-packed. That's why it's referred to as the gospel of action. It starts out, if you've got subheadings in your Bible, it may say something like, um, Jesus rejected in his hometown, or Jesus rejected in Nazareth, uh, because Jesus has gone home. You, you do remember that Jesus was a Nazarene. I'm just putting that out there. John was a Baptist, Jesus was a Nazarene. I guess John was also Wesley somewhere. But anyhow, if I can't get amens around a crown like this, I'm not going to get anything for him. But anyway, he's gone to his hometown and he's tried to present the kingdom. And this is what the people were doing. They're saying, hey, isn't this a hometown kid? Isn't this Mary's boy? Isn't this the carpenter's? Son, isn't this the carpet? You, you know what's going on. You realize tonight that when someone has changed your diaper, you're always that little mess. They always see you that way. That's what's going on. They have a, a low self-esteem of themselves anyhow being in Nazareth. And now they're rejecting the messenger that came from Nazareth. So that goes through verse 6. When you come down to verse 7, now you might have a subheading in your Bible that says something like Jesus commissions the twelve or Jesus sends out the twelve because this is that point in time. Well, listen to what verse 7 says. And Jesus called the twelve, and don't forget, three of them were on the mount, nine were in the valley, called them twelve to himself and began to send them out two by two and gave them power over unclean spirits. So I want you to see the picture. This sets the context for this This. What Jesus is doing, he calls his inner circle together, he pairs them off, and he sends them out under the authority of the kingdom to do everything that he himself had been doing up to this point. I'm going to say that again. He sends them out under the authority of the kingdom to do everything that he himself had been doing up to this time. And then we watch that they go out under that authority. They operate under, so much so when you hit verse 12, they're even preaching the same message. They're saying the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God has come. See, you don't wait till tomorrow to get in on this thing. For the child of God, eternity has begun. The kingdom of God is at hand. You need to do what it takes. You need to repent and believe the good news. That's verse 12. But then verse 13 says this. And they, three of which were on the mount, nine in the valley, cast out many demons, anointed with oil, many who were sick, and healed them. So not only did they go out under the authority of the kingdom, but because they operated under the authority of the kingdom... Kingdom power was revealed. They touched people who were sick and God made them well. They anointed people who were out of their minds and God put them in their right mind. Don't you wish God would do that for a few people you know? you got to see. When you come back to chapter 9, the reason why the man asked for the disciples to do what he had brought the boy to Jesus to experience was because they had done it. And you know that whenever Jesus 
touch somebody. The news spread. You get this image throughout the word of God. It spreads like wildfire. So you better believe when these disciples who were marked by him, that was the goal of the disciple. When they went out by his command, when they began to heal people, when they began to touch people and things would happen, you better believe the news spread. And so now the man, I look to them because they've done it before. But on this occasion, he says, they couldn't do it. And I'm going to be real. That bothers me. It does, because it makes me ask the question, why couldn't they do in chapter 9 what they had done in chapter 6? And never will you find, just in case you're wondering, in fact, go look for yourself. You ought to make sure I'm telling you the truth. You won't find anywhere between chapter 6 and chapter 9 where Jesus says, okay guys, that's over. I gave you that authority for that period of time. I'm taking it back. You don't get it. In fact, you can go all the way to the end of Mark's gospel. Some people would say there is no end. It's still being written in you and me. But you won't find one place where Jesus said, all right, that's the end of that. I'm taking it back now. No. In fact, you can jump into chapter 8, to, to the book of Acts. Chapter, and you remember the promise that we have there. We used to herald it in the holiness movement, chapter 1, verse 8, that we will receive power when? When the Holy Spirit has come upon us. And then we have that promise that we will do greater things. And you know what's so amazing about it? You see greater things. Those things are going on. And, and let me just put this. We should be experiencing it today. It's not fair to look at the disciples and say, why couldn't you do it? No, we have the very same spirit. We have the very same power. Kingdom power should still be being displayed. And if it's not, we at Sharon Camp, if it's not happening in our home, if it's not happening in our churches, if it's not happening in our world, we need to ask ourselves why, just as we look at them. It bothered me. I went round and round with it forever. Because I like to do things the hard way. My dad always told me, Billy, you do things the hard way. And I'd say, well, Dad, I just thought. And he'd say, that's where you messed up. <laughs> you knew me. I struggled with it, Larry. I, I tried to find, well, what's the difference? And all I had to do was remember the context. Verse 2. After six days of arguing, Jesus took the big mouths. But you know what I was forgetting? Just because he only took the big mouths doesn't mean that the nine that remained were on board with the plan. In fact, you know they weren't. Because it's displayed in other places. You know what? I'll just say it. Just because you're quiet doesn't make you holy. doesn't I've met some of the seemingly most quiet people some of them have buns sweet and they have been some of the biggest problems in the churches that I've been around I've learned I gotta be careful here because some of you won't like me well you don't anyway but 
I'm kidding about that. But anyhow, if you don't like me and you've been coming, you need to just stay home. It's too hot out here. But anyhow, it's not hot. I've learned that the people that are the sweetest to me in churches usually end up being the biggest pain to the pastor. I do. I I have. I've seen it firsthand, and it breaks my heart. I guess because you can fool me for four days, five services, or whatever period of time it is. But if we have to live together, sooner or later the real you is going to show up, the real me is going to come out too. Just because they're quiet, just because they're left behind, doesn't mean they're on the board with the plan. So this is what I see. I'm just going to give it to you. Here's the proposition. They're powerless. Left to their devices, the kingdom of darkness would prevail in this boy's life. The ambassadors of the kingdom of light. And here's the issue. You cannot, I cannot, we can't, you cannot rebel against kingdom authority and expect to operate in kingdom power. I'm going to say it again. You cannot rebel against kingdom authority and expect to operate in kingdom power. I'll say it another way. You can't do things your way. I can't do things my way and expect to be blessed by His presence. It's His way. None other. I could also say it like this. Disobedience hinders the work of God. And if you say, well, you can't hinder God's work, I would just simply say to you, read the Word. You'll see it happening. This is serious business. For six days, they've been arguing with the plan. And now, when this need has arise, Jesus isn't there. And we watch, this is how pathetic it is. They go through the same routine that they had gone through before, whatever that may have been. I I can just see them. They're laying their hands on this boy. They're pouring oil all over him. They're praying loud. But the only difference is what they did in chapters. Now it's not working. It bothers me. You know what it is really? It's Samson. You remember the story of Samson? Nazarite from the womb. We talked about that today separated from the world, but separated to God for a purpose, had all these issues of separation. It wasn't simply his hair. He played loosely his entire... The first words you hear Samson speak, I saw a woman! What a jerk. He was. Samson was a jerk. He lived loosely. He was on this downward spiral until finally we see him shacked up with a harlot. Delilah. Not the one on the radio. She seems sweet. Philistine, or at least the Philistines come to buy her off, says, hey, we're tired of this guy. He's whooping us. We want him out of the picture. Find out the secret of his strength. She's easily bought. So she goes to him and says, "Um, Samson, honey, darling, sugar plums, sweetie pie. I'm a single man. That's the best that you're going to get. You're probably seeing why I'm single. What's the secret of your great strength? And so she tells him something. 
he tells her something and then falls asleep. And the very thing he tells her, she does. Samson, the Philistines are upon you. Once he do, he gets up, goes out, and he whoops them. Second time, third time. See, if it only happened once, I might let him slide. But three times? Come on. It shows you how dumb sin is. I mean, how stupid can you be? Three times it goes on, and then finally, when the third time didn't work, she's whiny. She does, she comes in a whiny voice. How can you say you love me? I want to say, talk to me about love, woman. You're trying to kill me. That's what she says. How can you say you love me when your heart's not with me? So it was that she pressed him and pressed him and pressed him till Scripture says that he was vexed. I don't even know what that means, but it sounds bad. That finally it comes to that point where this is what the word says. So it was that Samson told her, Delilah, all his heart. I'm going to say, wait a second, Samson. Your heart belongs to him. Samson, you were called out of this world to him for a purpose. But he gives his heart to her. Last issue of separation, his hair. She cuts it like a dummy falls asleep. You'd think you'd learn. She cuts his hair. Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And this is what the word says. He gets up and goes out as he had before and wist, King James, wist not. He didn't even know. Didn't realize that the spirit, that the power had left him. They are going through the, they've been arguing for the last six days, trying to tell the king of this kingdom that it's not going to happen that way. They want it their way. And now they're doing the, it bothers me because I go to churches everywhere. And I have watched people who go through their religious routines over and over and over again. Good people who might even come out on a Sunday night, who might even come to camp meeting on a Tuesday night, and yet somehow we've got to the place where we're willing to just punch a time clock, check a box, we will settle for something that looks like, I mean, we've accepted a form of religion, but we deny the power therein. You cannot. I cannot. We can't. Rebel against kingdom authority and expect to operate in kingdom power. It can't be done. Well, Jesus, I said I was going to mention anything about it, but I need to say this. Aren't you glad that we have a Jesus who will step in and do what we fail to do? I expected a better amen than that. I'm thankful that Jesus heals this boy completely. In fact, it reads kind of funny. He, he speaks to the demon. He has to leave because he's the source of authority. But after he leaves, we watch the boy falls, and he falls as dead is what Scripture says, and then everybody around says, oh, look, he's dead. 
That reads funny to me. You don't care, but that's all right. (laughs) He heals this boy completely. He doesn't do half measures. He says, leave him and never enter him again. Don't enter him anymore. He can do that for us. You, You realize that. He does things completely. The disciples retreat like a puppy with their tail beneath, between their legs. They, they've been beaten, it seems, and so they go into a house. Now, Jesus, who knows how long he stayed out in the crowd. That was his practice. He always gave people to the measure of what they wanted of himself. And so we watch. He finally comes to the house, and then we hear them confront Jesus in the same whiny voice that Delilah used to Samson. They say, why couldn't we do it? We've done it before, Jesus. Why couldn't we? Then Jesus takes this opportunity to teach them. He wants to move them from where they are to where they should be. And I believe this is a verse that has been misused over the years. Maybe that's too harsh. At least misunderstood. Because Jesus responds and says, this kind, this kingdom power, can only come out will only be revealed through prayer and most manuscripts have added and fasting. So what was it that Jesus was saying to these men? This kind, kingdom power, can only come out, will only be revealed through prayer. and Was he saying, guys, you just didn't pray long enough. You didn't hold on and hold on and hold on and hold on until you got... And and understand, I believe in praying through, but I doubt they prayed at all. Remember the condition of their heart. Remember their disobedience. They're... Well, you're not agreeing with me on that, but... uh, Maybe he was saying, well, you, you know, you're just not getting this discipline of prayer. I have been trying to model it to you. I've been... But you got... You are so... Thick-headed. <laughs> That's what he says to me, not them. But anyhow. Tell you what we're going to do. When we're going to wherever we're going tomorrow, we're going to swing by Target and we're going to buy us 13 stopwatches. And, and for the next little bit, you're going to find you a closet. Some, I don't care where it is. Sometime during the day, you're going to get away and you're going to time yourself for an hour. Now, I'm going to do it six or seven because I'm a little farther along than you. But then you just go, God help us. Can I ask you, when has prayer ever been relegated to a time, uh, a time frame? Let me ask you this too. Y- you can pray for 24 hours. You can ramble a bunch of words and never pray. What was he saying? I think, and of course, you can take a different view on this. But I think you have to look at the symbol The Word of God, you do understand, is filled with symbolism. Old Testament, New Testament, it carries through. You have to look at the symbol of prayer and the symbol of fasting. And what is prayer a symbol of all throughout the Word of God? Now, you can respond a couple of different ways. I started out by asking, how do we get the power of the mount down to the valley of living? And you could say that prayer is a symbol of connection, which, which it is, but I believe that's a shallow interpretation. You have to be connected to the source in order to allow the power to flow. But I think there's something deeper that Scripture teaches us that prayer is. 
Prayer is born out of necessity. Why? Because it shows a uh, a dependency on God. Do you understand that? Prayer throughout the Word of God is always a symbol of dependency. Where would I get that? Well, we could pick out of a number of different verses, but since we're kind of in a revival type setting, let me give you the old revival verse. 2 Chronicles chapter 17, verse 13. God, speaking to Solomon, says that if I shut up the heavens and there is no rain, if pestilence devours the land, he says, if you find yourself, Solomon, dwelling in dry and dead places, and when did Israel ever end up in dead and dry places? When they went their own way. It's always, whenever you find Israel in the desert, it's always a result of their sin. They're doing it their way. They've got a better plan. If you find yourself in these desert places, if I shut up the heavens, there is no rain. If pestilence devours the land, if death and destruction is on every side, verse 14, if my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways. What is he saying? He's saying if my people will realize that they need me, if they will make recognition that they can't do it on their own, if they come to the place where they understand that their livelihood, their their wealth, it's dependent upon what I do, who I am. If my people will realize that they need me, then I'll hear from heaven. Then I'll forgive their sin. Then I'll heal their land. Prayer is a symbol of dependency. So this kind kingdom power can only be revealed, can only come out Through dependency. Let me ask you this real quick. You're being patient. But let me ask you. Honesty. What do you depend on in your everyday life? Truth? Most of us depend more on our smartphone than we do him. Most of us talk to Siri... Or that other chick. I'm I'm loyal to Siri. I don't remember even her name. She's nothing to me. (laughs) Most of us will talk to Siri more than we talk to Him. And if we are going to know His power, if kingdom power is going to be, if we are going to see a, a, a revival... We have to become dependent. We have to realize it doesn't matter all the wonderful equipment that we have, all the talent that comes in, all the education that we have. We are so educated we can't stand ourselves. We need Him. Kingdom power can only be revealed. This kind can only come out through dependency, prayer, and fasting. You know what fasting is a symbol of? I won't waste any time. It's desperation. We've come to a place that we've exhausted everything else. And if if you don't move, if you don't do something, we'll even give up food. That's serious business. Or we'll give up TV. Or we'll give up whatever it is. We, we, We will fast. We're so desperate 
for you. But see, here's the problem with that. In the Western world, we don't know anything about desperation. I'm sure the people of Honduras know a little bit more about desperation than we do here in Wadsworth, Ohio. But we sing about it, or at least we have. I'll go to churches and we'd sing, this is the air I breathe. I'm desperate for you. I don't think we should sing things we don't mean. Do you you know what you're singing? You're telling me that you're so desperate for him? well, Well, let me just ask you. If you don't have air, what happens? It's not a trick question, folks. You die. And you're telling me, oh, it's a beautiful lyric. It's all this, uh, you're the air I breathe. This is my daily bread. But what happens if you don't have sustenance? Most of us don't live our lives that without. See, what would happen if we became the people that said, if we don't see you tonight, if you don't come tonight in camp meeting, If you don't do something, then we'll just not go on. What would happen in your family if you're not revealed? Not just Sunday morning. Oh, we have settled for so little in the Western world. There's so much. Why? Because we're not desperate. It's hard to tell people who have everything that they need anything. This kind... Kingdom power can only come out, will only be revealed through prayer, dependency, and fasting desperation. If we are going to know His power, then we are going to have to be a people who are dependent and desperate for Him. So let me ask you this, and I'm being sincere. I don't care what your age is. I don't know, care how long you've been walking. I, I, I want to ask you this. How is your relationship with Him? Are you seeing kingdom power displayed in your life? In your family's life? In your church's life? And if not, why not? We've known His power in the holiness movement. I dare say that there were times when people would sit outside these walls. That's how most camp meetings I go to would have been. They'd, tell me, they'd show me pictures of it. Why not? Are, are you seeing people transformed? Are people being delivered out of the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light? Or could you care less? Because that's the pastor's job. I want to know His power. I'm tired of listening to the stories. I'm thankful for them. I want to know it. And the only way, His power has not changed because He has not changed. Man's need has not changed. Times have, but so have the people of God. We've settled. 
We'd rather do it our way. Is there any question why we're not blessed? So how is it with you? You can't change anybody else, but you can you. Let me remind you, as I remind myself, that we cannot rebel against kingdom authority. It's got to be His way and expect to operate in His power. This kind comes out of desperation and dependency. So Jesus tonight, make us desperate. Not uncomfortable, make us desperate. Bring us to a point of dependency where we understand that if you don't do it, we can never pull it off. I pray for the Holiness Church. I pray for the Church of Jesus Christ in the Western world. It's exploding in other areas. It can here too if we would just become dependent and desperate. I pray for Holiness Camp meetings all over this country. Make it more than a family reunion. Renew something within us. Restore your power. Touch your people again. Because we're desperate and dependent upon you. Transform households. Give us mom and dads that will not settle for anything less than your presence first and foremost in the home. I guess I'm just asking you, Jesus, revive us. Do something in us so your power is revealed once more. I'm going to invite you to stand to your feet. I, I, I know how this goes. I, I would that when we stood up, we would just make our way to altars of prayer. I wish we wouldn't wait for a song because you know where you are. The Holy Spirit's been speaking to you. You know where you are. Some of you are so prideful you won't come to an altar of prayer. Well, sit and die in your seat then. I want to be part of a people that know the power of God. So if you need to spend some time dealing with some issues in your life, as we sing, you come. You hold the key. You come.